0: So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So then Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the, the, place, called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Gagatha, where they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is God's word. You could be seated. Well, good morning, North Mountain.
1: Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, As Josh said, my name is Tyler Johnson, and I work with Redemption Arizona at large. So Redemption's uh, a multi-congregational church, 10 congregations, one in Flag, one in Tucson, and eight in Metro Phoenix. But here's what I want to do. There's a statement I think about a lot, that the only you that God can change is the real you. So even as Anthony was reading scripture, truth be told, we're all like each other. I'm like you, you're like me, and we kind of weave in and out of that scripture. We hear a phrase, we think about it, then we think about all the other stuff that's going on in our lives. Um, The things that are really proximate and really pressing to us. But we all showed up for a couple different reasons. Either out of habit, you come to church on Sunday, um, because a friend invited you. But my sense is the vast majority of us that showed up want a word or a better thing we could say is an encounter with God. So even if you sit in here this morning and you go, you know, I don't even know what I think about all of this. There's this moment that you came saying, if there's a God, I'd love to encounter him. Others of you are in tremendous amounts of pain and you go, I would love to be touched by God. Others of you are frustrated maybe spiritually with your apathy and you want to encounter God. So I just, I want to ask for that. This isn't an intro to the sermon. This is a moment and I'm just going to take maybe 40 seconds to a minute and be quiet. It's going to feel like an eternity to you, but I want you to bring the real you before God. Remember that phrase I started with? The only you that God can change is the real you. Just a moment to go, Lord, this is what I'm bringing to you. As we experience worship together the rest of this time this is what's going to get in my way this is the reality of my story this is the reality of my pain these are where my thoughts are and then i'm just going to pray i'm going to pray over the room Um, i'm going to pray that god gives me specific things to say that i don't even know apply to you but that he'd apply them so let's just do that 40 seconds to a minute you just bring the real you before god it's going to be quiet and then i'm just going to pray over us together and then we'll get into this text Father God, uh, we just right now set our minds' attention to the fact that you're present here. God, you are the God who's everywhere present. You're the one in whom we live and move and have our being. But I pray today that you would make your presence palatable. In a personal way to each person in this room, I pray that they would directly experience your voice Uh, That you would open eyes to see you and ears to hear you. I pray that you would speak to personal situations. I pray that you'd speak collectively to Redemption North Mountain. God, I pray for your power. Paul tells us in your word that the kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. So God, we ask you right now for you to put yourself on display in a personal and in a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been walking through the Gospel of John. Um, I'm going to say this real quick, just before, before I fall. Um, I almost fell off of this. I literally was walking. almost fell. So this is my thought when I pray um, like that, is I've been thinking about this a lot, is that what we need as people who follow Jesus, and maybe most of us are church attenders, is we don't ultimately need songs in a sermon. Now, Don't mishear what I'm saying. God speaks to us through song and he's about to speak to us hopefully in the words I say. We don't need songs in a sermon, we need God. So the moments we slow down and just ask God to be God and to show up, that's what we're saying is that we've been around a lot of songs and a lot of sermons, but we need God. So that was the purpose of the prayer. So we've been walking through the gospel of John and we're in chapter 19, right where we're moving in to this pivotal moment in the Christian faith of the crucifixion. And when we look at the scene and slow down long enough and do what many of our English teachers or even all the way back to when we learned reading, the best of the reading teachers would say, slow down and try to put yourself into this story. So the challenge is offered to all of us every time we open the Bible to slow down long enough to feel the emotions that are coming out of the text to see the faces of the people that are in this moment, to imagine the totality of the crowd. For instance, when you enter this mob scene that is Jesus before Pilate in front of this entire crowd, to think, I wonder if there were kids there. I wonder how this moment affected the seven-year-old when he was 20. You begin to zero in at the end of this text of a scene on Jesus' mother and this very close friend of his who most um, of the experts would say is the one writing this text, John himself. So we enter this scene it says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now this whole entire scene is about kingship. There's a huge conversation about Jesus claiming to be king. The Jews are saying, he's claiming to be God. And then they're also saying he's claiming to be king because to the Romans, if he claimed to be king, that was the only thing he cared about. Whether or not he, care, he claimed to be a god, it doesn't really matter. But the whole text is claiming kingship. And Pilate, whom Jesus has already been and engaged with around this idea of what is the truth and what is it, Jesus, that you're ultimately claiming, G- Pilate now takes him and he flogs him. He takes Jesus and he flogs him. Now, I want to say something quickly that Josh did an incredible job on two weeks ago. When we see this name Jesus, so then Pilate took Jesus, this is chapter 19, verse 1, and he flogged him. The soldiers twist together a crown of thorns. And they put it on Jesus's head. They array him in a purple robe. Purple was the color of royalty. So they're setting up a public spectacle of Jesus. I'm going to ask you guys to engage with me for a minute. How many of you guys have ever heard the phrase tarred and feathered? You guys heard that? So that phrase actually comes from this feudal, more medieval practice in which they were trying to create a public spectacle of somebody. They'd strip them down probably just to like their underwear. They would put tar all over their body, a lot of times hot tar, and then they would make them roll in feathers or they would dump feathers all over them. Now, if you had tar all over your body and feathers got thrown on you, they'd stick to you. And the point was to mock this person for whatever reason. This was even carried on into the early United States. And people did it at times when folks would stand up against certain things. So there was a man in Minnesota who stood up against kind of anti-German sentiment in World War II, and they tarred and feathered him. Now it's a phrase that's used to go, that person's getting crushed. Their tart and feather enter in Twitter, right? Is Twitter is this public spectacle? It's an online environment where people get publicly ridiculed, publicly mocked. The whole intention is to ultimately get that person canceled. So when you enter into this scene that Jesus is in right now, they're twisting together a crown of thorns. They're robing him in purple. They're saying, you claim to be a king. It's a public spectacle. If you want to think with modern eyes, think Twitter. Now you may go, well, that's a little ridiculous. Twitter compared to a man who's about to be crucified. But don't forget, the wisdom author in Proverbs says, words kill Or words can give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. The outcome of the level of fury that happens on social media does and will. I'm not saying that as a prophet. I'm saying that just as you watch history. Will end in physical abuse and even murder. But there's such an interesting thing at play in this text because they're putting together a crown of thorns. They're putting it on the head of Jesus. They're arraying him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate, the Roman leader, went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you know I find no guilt in this man. Again, it's impossible for me to read this and not think of the public spectacles that happen inside our communities and in our culture all the time. Is these moments of this great idea of innocent until proven guilty does not happen in the court of Twitter or the court of social media. And Pilate's going, there's this whole mob coming at him, and he's like, listen, I don't find this man guilty, but I'm flogging him, beating the heck out of this man because you're telling me to. And again, it's the name Jesus. Verse five, so Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate says to them, behold, this word is all over the Bible and I'm not certain you all um, know it or we always recognize it all the time. Behold means look. Look at the man. Behold the man. When the chief priests, that's the Jewish religious authorities and the officers saw him, they cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. Why the level of fury toward an innocent Man. Now they will say in just a minute, because our law says, if you do what he did, our law says, if you do what he did, he should be killed. So I want to stop for a minute and think, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is the Jesus who truly is the king. The scriptures that we teach every single week um, begin to unfold this reality of Jesus in some very powerful ways, in the first chapter of the book of Colossians and in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says Jesus, this Jesus who's being publicly mocked, having a crown of thorns put on his head, blood dripping because they're thorns, uh, m- being mocked and robed in purple, this Jesus is the one in whom God allowed all of creation to be spoken into existence through his, Jesus' voice. It was Jesus who's the one who says, let there be light, and there was light. It's Jesus the one who said, let there be birds, and there were birds. It's Jesus who spoke into existence the first human being, male and female. It's Jesus who as he spoke into existence, male and female determined eyebrows and eyes and noses and mouths and arms, and legs and feet. He's the same one, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 say, says that he upholds the universe by his powerful word. So noses sit above lips because of his powerful word. Even though there's engineers who make buildings, the reality is is roofs stay over our head, if we believe this stuff, over our head, because in Christ, Jesus himself, all things consist. So how does that God, who's that powerful, powerful enough to separate seas to allow the Israelites to walk through them? That same God who enables the power of a shepherd boy like David to defeat Goliath. The same God who in his power walks on water. How does that Jesus allow himself to be publicly ridiculed, made a public spectacle of, to be quiet way more than when he talks? But when he talks, he speaks with loving but very piercing words to this Roman ruler. How is it that this is a man who's when standing before the Roman ruler who himself, Pilate says, do you not understand? I have the power to kill you or to free you. They say, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says to him, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Verse seven, For the Jews answer him, we have a law. And according to the law, he had to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate hears this, he gets afraid. He enters his headquarters. Again, he goes to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gives him no answer. So this is what I was just talking about. So Pilate says to him, you won't speak to me? How is Jesus, right, the one who spoke the universe into existence, who has authority over all things, in whom all things hold together, not right now terrified? He enters his headquarters again and he says to this Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have the authority to release you and the authority to not just kill you, but to crucify you, to hang you on a cross, for you to experience the worst physical anguish, pain, and death that could possibly be there, and you won't talk to me? There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and this gets back to Josh's sermon he did two weeks ago when he was speaking about the king of the kingdom. That when you think about Jesus, he's the king of the kingdom. He's the heart of the kingdom. He creates the culture of the kingdom. This is a dark scene we've entered into here, a very dark, very hostile, very tense, very frightening scene if you were there. It's a vengeance mob that's screaming out at a man, it's very dark. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this. When you're living in the midst of darkness, and I would say to you, this applies to you personally. This applies to your family. This applies to your workplace. This applies to our cities. It applies to our nations. When we go, oh, it's dark. He says, the one who spoke light into darkness, spoke light into darkness has spoke again and reveals the glory of God the power the truth of God to us in the face of Jesus Christ now it's oftentimes when we hear passages like i quoted to you of in him all things hold together all things consist Through him, he spoke the universe into existence by his powerful word. We hear that and we think of Jesus and it's like we think of his power, but it's not unbelievably personal. He's saying light comes into darkness. We see the power and glory of God in his face. I don't know if you remember, two weeks ago, Josh started the sermon and he said, I was really impacted to speak today about the person of Jesus. And he began to speak about things that we don't slow down long enough to look at the face of Jesus in all of his interactions, but here with Pilate, his face, that we sit with Jesus in his person long enough to learn his cadences. Why does he not talk here when Pilate says something to him? But the next phrase Pilate has, he does speak back to him. Do we sit long enough to go, look at how non-anxious he is and then go, why is that? What is that? But I want to say to you, Jesus Christ in the midst of darkness, if we want light to come out of darkness, we have to slow down long enough and say Christ is the clue. Like when we're in a dark room and we need a clue of how to get out or you think about the game Clue and you're getting the cards and you're trying to put things together. If you went, if I just had This guidance, Christ is the clue. Martin Luther King Jr. said he's not just the clue, he's the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. Jesus, the person of Jesus we look at to make sense of all of the darkness. So if we step back and we try to make sense of this scene, right, and put yourself in it. I don't have the time to build up the whole scene, but as you think about the totality of this scene, all of the tension, all of the hatred, and you go, well, why? Why are these people so angry that they would just be screaming that we've already seen in the text to free a true criminal to crucify an innocent man? Why are they so hating so bad? Well, underneath hatred is anxiety. There's all kinds of complexity to it. And the Bible would say to us, this is a sinful world, which oftentimes we can just say like, all oh, this world's sinful, and we throw it off. But hear this, I wanna try to provide a little bit of a framework for us to understand sin and concentrated Christianity. So let's start with sin. Here are four dimensions of sin that are all the time true and are at play in this scene. The first one is this, sin is cosmic, Now, what I mean by cosmic is there's these moments in your life that get so confusing or so dark and people do things so evil that you go, this does not seem like this person or this doesn't even seem humanly possible that people would be this wicked. Now, what the Bible tells us is actually there is a reality that goes way beyond what we can see and there is a battle of good and evil. Of the devil and God, of lies and truth, of life and death, of light and darkness. There is a cosmic reality that's influencing the world all the time in false beliefs that when we believe them and put it into practice, things happen that we read later in history books and go, how could they ever do that? So we see pictures of lynchings. We see the reality of the Holocaust. We see horrible things that happen at the hands of fathers to their daughters and mothers to their sons. Ongoing, you name it. And we look at it and go, how could they ever do that? And we can look at a scene like this and go, that seems horrific. There is a reality of evil things being spoken that we take hold of and put into action that's what leads to the second thing sin is not just cosmic it's societal and it goes through society at large you see this at play here the conversation of Pilate and Jesus around truth and Pilate goes what is truth this is from a couple of weeks ago what is truth remember I said Christ is the clue and the key Jesus said I'm the truth but they're rejecting him and denying him The question of truth and falsehood, of light and life is cosmic. But when it's taken and we go, we determine our own truth. And then we set up our version of truth as the highest thing. Then we say things like, in our law, if they do that, they should die. Are we so certain that our law is so pure or our interpretation of God's law is so right that we're ready to murder people? Whether that be with our tongues on Twitter, in our kitchens, within our very own homes, to our very own spouses, to our own brothers and sisters, that we're willing to use our tongue, which the author of the Proverbs says, the tongue can give life or create death. Are we really willing to do that? But it takes form in societal ways. Sin is cosmic, it's societal, it's individual. This is what you see with Pilate in Jesus. And it's ecclesial. Now that's a word that's like, what does that even mean? It's hard to say it's in the church, it's in the people of God, but the word ecclesial means in the church. Church Churchial sounds weird, right? But that's what it means. It's cosmic, societal, individual, and ecclesial. Who is it in this text that ultimately gets Jesus put on the cross? The people of God the Jews, the ones that are leading the charge to say, crucify him, crucify him, are the people of God. Now, I just want to stop and say this. There are a lot of people that will go, the church is just following the way of the world. I just want to submit a question to you for you to talk about when you leave. Is the church following the way of the world or is the world following the way of the church? If God has set up the people of God to be a city on a hill, The salt of the earth. And Jesus himself says, But if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it but to be trampled underfoot? I think God has set the church up to say, This is what humanity is actually supposed to look like when you surrender to Jesus as King. And when we don't, the world follows our ways the ways of our hatred, the ways of our self preservation. The ways of us worshiping and bowing at the feet of comfort, convenience, safety, and security. So when you step back and you go, okay, these are the realities that are at play in this text. They're at play in the world all the time. The solution of God will come at a cosmic level, a societal level, into us as individuals and within the church, within the people of God. So I wanna give you one more framework. I'm not here all the time and this may feel like a little too much, but when you step back and you go, when I look at Jesus and we're meant to follow Jesus, if you were just gonna boil it all down and concentrate what the heart of God and the call to follow God in Jesus really is, what's a concentrated Christianity? And I think you see this at play in the person of Jesus in this text. But here's something to think about and I would highly recommend if you have notes, write this down or take a picture with your phone. Not because I'm brilliant, but because this is important, okay? Concentrated Christianity. Here's the first one. Jesus is God. What there's an incredible scene <laughs> coming up in this text, which this is a long text, so we're not going to get there, but where they actually take Jesus. This is in verse 13. So when Pilate had heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat him on the judgment seat, a place called the stone pavement in Arabic, Gabatha. So he takes Jesus and he puts him in the judgment seat and he goes, here's your king. What's so astonishing is this is a public mockery in which the truth of the universe, the reality of the world, is being declared through public mockery. Jesus is king. Jesus is king the author, and the perfecter of everything. He is the creator and sustainer of everything, even your voice box. The voice box that they screamed crucify him with, he determined the type of voice that would come out of each one of those individuals' mouths. And he's being publicly ridiculed. Concentrated Christianity starts with this reality that Jesus is God. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion, or every other false teaching of Christianity, what many people call cults, they deny that. Jesus is God, and if he's God, he's the king of kings. Jesus is God. Here's the next thing. God is love. This is what the Jews did not believe. At the core level, they're like, it's law. If you go against the law... Read Paul in the New Testament's argument in what he comes to the conclusion of time and time again. You fulfill the whole law if you love. Why is that true? Because God is love. Jesus is God, God is love, God calls us, this is the third one, to love as he loved. Not just to love our neighbors as ourselves, but to love as he loved. What do we see from this passage of the way Jesus Loves us the way Jesus loves the world. Unto what? Participate with me. Jesus loves us unto, where does this passage end? Death, sacrificially, willing to be publicly mocked to love us, to love the world, to love his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ Dies for us while we her his enemies. He gets mocked by us to save us. He calls us to love as he loved. Now, when you see that, you go, that's impossible, which is why the last one is true. We need power, God power, Holy Spirit power to love like that. This is when I go take a picture of that, not because I'm brilliant, but because that's true. That's mere Christianity in a world that gets so confusing where everybody wants to cancel each other if you don't agree with me. If you don't agree with my interpretation of the text, you're gone. If you don't agree with this, the world is gonna go to hell in a handbasket because of your views. Folks, if we follow Jesus, we go, we just don't live in that anxiety. We actually believe Jesus is in control of it all. We actually believe in the midst of the confusion, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's called us to love. We believe that when somebody's massively different than us and it adds all of these questions about what is their eternal destiny, that we need to go, we aren't the ultimate one who sits on the judgment seat. He is. I remember the words that he said of, hey, when you're trying to pick up what's wheat and what's tares, that's not your job. Leave that to the God at the end of the day. What your job is to love as he loved. To weave fabric of friendship in a seamless way rather than a divisive way. This is at the very end of this passage and here's where we need to end. The very end of this passage, I absolutely love the end of this section Starting in verse 23, and I'm going to read it, and I'm just going to make a couple simple observations that I think are absolutely central to the work of Christ. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. They divided them in four parts. Now, I'm doing this, okay? More than even I think the text is doing it, though I think there's an amazing device John is using when he writes this. So think about the word divided. They crucify Jesus, he's not yet dead, but he's on a cross. Between two others, this text says, we know between two thieves from other passages. When they crucified him, they take his garments and they divide his garments. Now when you think about the word division and you follow the logic of Jesus, his prayer, and what Paul says he's doing, he's not in the business of ultimately dividing sin does that they divide them into four parts one part for each soldier i'm gonna get mine but then they bump up but the tunic they couldn't divide it was seamless now many commentators actually make this observation of this speaks about the priesthood that jesus is both king and a priest and all that means is he cares He isn't just a king, but he's a caring, shepherding, priestly king. But I find it fascinating that what they're trying to divide, the tunic is seamless, so they go, okay, now we'll cast lots. We'll basically bet. We'll roll craps to see who gets the tunic. What they want, they're going, what's mine? Give me what's mine. Separate it so we each get ours. And God's going, the goal of this was never for you to get yours, The goal of this was for us to be one, for you to be truly who you are. The world is seamless. The devil makes it divided, makes us see it this way. Seamless, woven from one piece from top to bottom, they say to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture that says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. Now he goes immediately (laughs) into his mother. John goes into Jesus' mother. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, a bunch of women, which is very interesting. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, this is behold your son. Woman, behold your son. So Jesus looks at his mother Mary and then looks at his best friend John and he goes, woman, behold your son. They were not biological mother and son. Woman, behold your son. Then he looked at the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Here's the end game. Jesus Christ, work on the cross is making you sons and daughters and us family. That's what God's up to. In the midst of division, he brings reconciliation. In the midst of what's distance, he says become proximate. And he loves consistently and continually. And just like John 13 said, he loves us unto the end. Let's pray. Father. I ask your grace upon this room. I ask that where there is division, God, you'd bring reconciliation. God, I ask you that where people are confused, your light would shine in the darkness and we would see the face of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.